From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. I think the biggest handicap, like so many plans in Washington, right, is how much is it going to cost and who's going to pay for it? And that issue, as we know, um, runs along partisanship, and, and we'll see who will support um, these programs and uh, that are willing to pass it. Um, the plan, as it stands, will roll back corporate tax cuts, and it will increase the corporate tax rate to pay for everything. Um, but I think this is something that should be non-negotiable, right? Um, this plan will invest in very necessary improvements for the country, um, and corporations and billionaires should pay. Welcome back to season six of the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. The Biden administration's $2.2 trillion infrastructure plan promises to prioritize longstanding and persistent racial injustices by transitioning to a more democratic energy system including in the electrical grid and public transit. Miami Law's Friedman Foundation practitioner-in-residence at the Environmental Justice Clinic, Abigail Fleming, walks us through the biggest obstacles to energy justice. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Morning, Abigail. Nice to have you back. Great to be here. Uh, let's start off with Biden's American Jobs Plan. It's dead on, I think, in, in ways to promote uh, fairness across race and class lines. Could you talk a little about the big ticket line items? Yeah, the plan does aim to get a lot done uh, with a huge focus on jobs and the environment. Uh, so we're seeing environmentalists and labor groups across the country really hail this American jobs plan as a step in the right direction. Um, but I think when faced with the climate crisis uh, that is so vast and four years of inaction by the former administration, administration. Um, I, I think that Biden's uh, plan, even though it is massive, it's still too small to make a real difference in reversing global warming. Um, so you're seeing a lot of advocates asking for four times as much, um, because really, and in my opinion as well, there's no such thing as too ambitious. Uh, we're in a crisis and we have been for a long time. Um, so I think we need to set the bar a bit higher and then negotiate from there. Uh, within his plan, Biden's looking to, to fix transportation infrastructure, deliver clean water to all Americans, renew the electric grid, uh, get broadband internet access to everyone, and weatherize homes and buildings across the nation, while also creating quality jobs and really revitalizing the manufacturing industry. Um, I think one part of the plan that I want to highlight is just weatherization. Um, Biden's talking about rehabilitating and really retrofitting affordable, accessible, energy efficient and resilient housing. Um, this process of, of protecting infrastructure from the, from the elements is vital for long-term resiliency. Um, as I mentioned, we're in a climate crisis and the science shows that climate change is already impacting low-income communities of color. Um, our current failing infrastructure is not prepared to face the effects um, of worsening natural, natural disasters. Um, and there's a growing divide between those who can weatherize their homes and, and those who don't have access to the tools or funds necessary to do so. Um, even here in Miami-Dade, based on community feedback, there's a huge desire within rental and low-income communities, predominantly black and brown communities, to weatherize their homes. Um, this cannot it not only can weatherization protect in the event of a disaster, but it can also mitigate local carbon emissions, um, really thereby helping to alleviate the harshest consequence of global warming. Um, in fact, the Environmental Justice Clinic here at UM Law has partnered with the peer group and Catalyst Miami, and we are assisting um, 
a community initiative to create a weatherization clinic. Um, and the clinic will connect low-income households to existing weatherization programs, uh, audit the programs to identify the barriers to weatherization, um, and really develop solutions to any barriers that are identified. Um, so I think the, the Biden plan in regards to weatherization is right on point, and we're already seeing uh, local activists um, latch onto that plan and um, really advocate for it. Oh, okay. That's a very lofty uh, goal. Uh, glad to see it. Um, is there something besides should be four times bigger uh, missing from the plan? And and do you think part of that has to do the ambitiousness that it already has is trying to get some part of it through? Yeah, I, I definitely think, as I mentioned before, we need to go bigger and we need to invest more and we need to do that fast because we are in crisis. But I think the biggest handicap, like so many plans in Washington, right, is how much is it going to cost and who's going to pay for it? And that issue, as we know, um, runs along partisanship and, and we'll see who will support um, these programs and uh, that are willing to pass it. Um, the plan as it stands will roll back corporate tax cuts and it will increase the corporate tax rate to pay for everything. Um, but I think this is something that should be non-negotiable, right? Um, this plan will invest in very necessary improvements for the country. Um, and corporations and billionaires should pay. I mean, if we look at the facts, um, one study found in 2018 that only 91 Fortune 500 companies um, or 91 Fortune 500 companies paid zero in federal taxes, taxes on all U.S. income. And that's not right. Um, but I also think there is support in this. I think it's interesting that we're see who we're seeing start to um, to advocate for this. You're seeing people like Jeff uh, Bezos, who created Amazon, has actually shown support for the plan, not in full form, but to some degree. Because I think people are trying, are learning, are starting to understand that the plan would would benefit everyone, including corporations that use the same roads and the same amenities that we all do, that need that solid infrastructure to help them make money. Um, I think this is, you know, there's, I'm not saying that there's not going to be arguments and disagreements as they're negotiating, um, but I think um, it sets out a, a, a great step forward. And I, I don't think we should go any smaller, um, regardless um, what others may be advocating for. Hmm. Um, so I, I know that you mentioned broadband, which, which I don't know, to me is, is a huge issue uh, of equity and, and equality, because if you have a very bright kid who's living a hundred miles from a school that has AP classes and he doesn't have fast internet, he can't compete on the same level playing field. And you take that then to like farmers and manufacturers who who can't compete in the marketplace because because they don't have that that same element. Um, so uh, your your work is tied to holding governments accountable for the unfairnesses of of the past like building toxic incinerators or, or toxic wastewater ponds in, in neighborhoods that are really ill-equipped to fight back or even to be brought in to, to be part of the conversation. Um, kudos to you and, and your group of accountants. Um, is, is this a situation in, in Piney Point, Point, Florida with the leaking 79 acre, 660 million gallon reservoir? Absolutely. Um, Piney Point, uh, the former phosphate mining facility that leaked millions of gallons of wastewater uh, near Tampa Bay, is just yet another example of the lax enforcement of environmental regulations. For decades, there has been numerous uh, well-documented failures of the property's reservoir, um, causing human health and environmental disasters and incidents, um, 
as we're seeing evacuations, also uh, deaths of employees, and the release of more than 1 billion gallons of contaminated wastewater. And the wastewater released um, contains heavy metals and pollutants. And it's um, going into the water and soil and impacting not only Manatee County, but the entire region. Um, and again, I think this, this piney point is going to serve as a moment of reckoning for the state. Um, the phosphate industry should be held accountable and pay for the cleanup of piney point. Uh, government officials should ensure the permanent closure of the site and hold the owners responsible for the cost of the cleanup. Um, and this is something that can't be ignored. Uh, Central Florida is the phosphate capital of the world. The state produces 80% of the phosphate mined in the U.S. Um, so this is something um, that, you know, Florida needs to get a hold of. And we need to have better enforcement of environmental regulations that were created to protect people and the environment. But the state has continued to remain complacent and complacent and failed to enforce. Um, and again, no community should have to suffer this. And Florida needs to step up and hold those accountable, but also enforce the regulations that are there. Is there also, I know uh, the Governor DeSantis of Florida is, is talking about, you know, stepping in, stepping in enough, or does this really need federal oversight, like a Superfund site or, or something on that, you know, much higher federal level that has more rigorous oversight, perhaps? Yeah, I, I think this is something that Florida should have done a long time ago. And this is just, again, an example of Florida could have handled this. This was totally preventable. Um, and it's sad that we are in a position now um, where we have to, to seek federal oversight. Um, but again, I think this is something that Florida can handle and tackle. Um, I think we are capable as a state of doing that. Um, but again, we need to start, we don't need to start, um, we don't want to react to the crisis. We want to prevent the crisis. So um, I think Florida needs to take a deep look at its enforcement mechanisms and, and start to hold um, owners and companies accountable to their pollution. Mm -hmm. Let's widen out a little bit. I sort of feel like where goes Florida, the rest of the country? It's like we're really good at, at kind of messing things up and then, you know, trying to figure out a, a way to, to wiggle out. Um, so just looking at Florida, where do you see the most inequity, the most inequality when it comes to, you know, energy justice? environmental justice, kind of what's, what's our big, our big issue in Florida? Um, I, <laughs> I, I don't think we have uh, one big issue. I think right now, um, everyone, especially communities of color are in crisis. Um, whether it's, you know, uh, not having enough access to healthcare, not having access to excellent education, um, our workers are underpaid and undervalued. Um, and I think, you know, when you combine that on top of um, the COVID pandemic, um, you're seeing uh, the state of Florida really suffering. And again, this, you know, more so um, impacts um, communities of color who don't necessarily, because of systemic racism, don't necessarily have the resources to, to respond. Um, so I, I definitely... Um, want to shy away from picking one issue and one crisis, right? Because there's so many and they, they all intersect. Um, and I think what um, is terrifying for many communities is as they continue to face the impacts of climate change, um, they just, there's going to be massive displacement and um, just a massive reckoning for the state on how to, um, how to combat the impacts of climate change, but also how to protect its people. Mm-hmm. 
And Florida is ground zero climate change. Like Florida will be impacted long before any other state in the country, I think. Um, absolutely. I think um, when we're thinking about Florida, right, a peninsula um, that's already ex experiencing extreme heat waves um, and that's already seeing um, extreme uh, rise in sea levels, um, we're, we're at the forefront of, of the climate crisis. And uh, again, our elected officials need to take action. Um, they need to work with communities. Um, they need to create frameworks that shift power back to historically marginalized and oppressed communities by providing equitable access to benefits, by promoting empowered participation, and also advancing restorative protection from harms, right? If, if we look at um, the, the history of um, policy and practices in the state, it has um, marginalized Black communities. Um, we need to put the power back in the hands of those communities. And I think this can only happen with real structural and systemic change that's grounded um, in the, the unique history and culture and experiences of Black communities. Mm -hmm. Well, if, if we look at it at the micro level, especially in, in Miami, we're seeing historically Black communities that are on higher ground now being gentrified because that's the places where climate change is going to have the the least impact in the next you know three three decades so so yeah we are are very much seeing that that here um one one last thing i wanted to ask you about so we have the great american jobs plan that hopefully will will pass what's the next piece that needs to come after that you're saying more 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 um is there like American Jobs Plan 2, or are we dealing with, with, or is the Biden administration more looking wholly at things where the infrastructure also addresses this, the jobs plan also, the, you know, rejoining the, the Paris Climate Agreement. So do you see the Biden administration as kind of knitting all of these pieces together with that one, you know, far goal of, of, of being, you know, in, energy efficient, having energy equality, you know, kind of a, a whole cloth approach to these issues. Yeah, absolutely. I think his plans um, ensure um, that communities of color are getting access to necessities and amenities they need um, to, to thrive, right? And he, he does want to build back better, but I think he's pushing on the bounds of what we consider infrastructure, right? And I think many of his plans um, interconnect all the social and economic issues um, and they really are looking forward, right? And I think what's important now within the plan um, and through negotiations is whatever plan, um, you know, is decided upon in Washington and whatever investment um, is, is chosen, right? However much dollars are, that they need to pick a framework, um, again, that shifts power back, that changes some of those structures and, and systemic practices that create the inequalities, Right. So it can't just be about money, but it has to be about the framework with which this is going to be implemented. Um, and I think we're going to see that slowly fleshed out through negotiations. How much of that, that plan is rolling back the Trump era regu regulation? So I'm reading a lot about Bears Ears lately, but is that a, that's a separate legislation, even though it is sort of tied loosely to energy because it, it has to do with drilling rights? Yes, absolutely. And you're right. Um, Bare ears is a, a separate legislative issue. And yes, it is tied heavily to energy. Um, 
Bear Ears is a national monument. Um, it's an incredibly historic rock formation that's located in Utah, and it's home to a number of um, early human and, and Native American historical artifacts, and is just a sacred space um, for local indigenous tribes in the area. Uh, during the Obama administration, this, the site was protected, but the Trump administration began um, reviewing all national park designations over the past 20 years. Um, and began removing uh, federal protection so that lands could be sold for oil and gas extraction. And that's exactly what happened to Bear Ears. Uh, President Trump reduced the um, Bear Ears monument size from 1.3 million acres to 200,000 acres. Um, tribes with a strong ancestral connection to Bear Ears, along with environmental groups, filed lawsuits seeking to reverse the decisions, arguing that Trump had overstepped his authority. Um, and so those challenges are pending before federal judges in D.C. Um, the Trump administration made little effort to consult with um, paleontologists and other researchers when it shrank the monuments. So we're now seeing these groups asking Biden um, to restore the, the monument protections to sites that are so scientifically valuable. Um, and regarding uh, how this connects with the plan, I think Biden's plan, um, it looks to the future. I, I don't want people uh, focusing on, on what it's rolling back because Again, like I mentioned earlier, the former administration uh, was complacent and there was no progress. Um, so I really think the, the jobs plan now, along with his um, other issues related to Bears Ears, um, we should be focusing on you know, what they're bringing into the future, what they're bringing access to um, for Native Americans and communities of color. And um, again, we, we're wanting communities to, to have access to, to the necessities and the amenities they need to thrive. Okay. I just love saying bears ears. It just makes me very happy. Yeah, <laughs> the best. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was fantastic. Nice being here. All right. We'll catch you again next season. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us at The Explainer for a whole new season of interpreting legal issues in the headlines. If you love our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uges. Today's episode is brought to you by the Hoffman Forum's Civil Conversation Series, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Art Museums and Universities. Similar goals, divergent paths, is the topic of the upcoming virtual event on April 26. For more information, visit law.miami.edu.